scripture for this morning. We're in Ephesians chapter 4, and I'm going to read verses 17 through 19. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Thanks, Cammie. Well, here we are, another Sunday. Good to see everybody. Welcome to those of you joining us online. So last week, we started this third and final leg of this letter that Paul Paul writes to the church in Ephesus, and it's where he focuses on individual behavior. And when you step back and you look at this letter that he writes, it actually makes a ton of sense how he does it, because he starts out with what it is that we're to know about our belief, because everything starts with knowledge. It's so important that we understand the doctrines of our faith so that we can behave as a church in step with God's master plan, which as we know, Paul taught us, his plan is to unite all things in Christ. And he does that through the church. And then of course, since we're all members of his church, it just naturally flows that he would then turn to how individuals are to behave. Of course, Paul will continue to keep reaching back into the belief sections because the two are inextricably linked. It's two sides of the same coin. And we're gonna see it playing out over and over again, belief and behavior, as he gets to the minute details of how it is that individuals are to behave. It seems Paul is very intent on us applying this truth so that we might live out our lives consistently. Think about that, living a life of consistency so that the entirety of our existence seeks to honor God in the highs and lows of our everyday, ordinary lives. And last week, Paul initiated this final section by telling us what it is that we're not to do. We're not to walk as those Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. And recall that word that Paul used for mind means the totality of our inner being. So the totality of the inner being of a Gentile was futile. It was empty, perverse, devoid of truth, and depraved. A life operating by worldly power, as we saw during Holy Week, prideful, externally focused, coercive, forceful, destructive, self-centered, seeking materialism, wealth, the latest fads, a life chasing after the wind, still on that wide, dark path that leads to eternal destruction. And we learned last week that believers, they can't live like that anymore. And why is that? Because we've been born again into a new life in Christ, started life over again as an infant. It means we've placed our faith in Jesus and we've been justified or made right before God. Our sins have been washed away by Christ's blood, that drop of blood you see up there. It's what puts us on that well-lighted path, the one that's headed for that narrow gate that opens up into God's kingdom. It's the path of sanctification, where God places his Holy Spirit within us and makes us more Christ-like. So we have a new identity now in Christ when we're born again, and we can't help but behave differently. As we grow up, remember Paul told us we gotta grow up, 
maturing to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. It's why we can't behave as though we're still on that wide, dark path. We're different now. There's a firewall in between the two. We can't keep a foot in both worlds. And so if you want to step back and see what Paul's really going to tell us today, the bottom line is this. Our behavior must change. We cannot continue to live like we're still on that wide, dark path. That is his focus. But of course, Paul is not content to just leave it at that. He doesn't speak in generalities here. He goes on to provide very specific details to explain why it is that people live or behave this way, why it is that they have feudal minds as unbelievers. He writes, they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. Due to their hardness of heart, they have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Can you begin to appreciate the details with which Paul gets into for individual behavior? So important to see these details. Isn't it also remarkable how little has changed in the 2,000 years since he penned these words? Things are still pretty much the same. It fits the modern man to a T, darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God. And yet they're so proud, aren't they? Self-absorbed, clever. They're a bunch of know-it-alls. And if you maybe have been brought into that culture a little too much where you can't recognize it, go home today and watch the news. It doesn't matter whether you're on the right or the left, a CNN or a Fox News person, it doesn't matter. If you watch the news these days, you see a whole bunch of know-it-alls. Everybody knows everything, and they just sit there and bash everybody else, right? Now, because of that, because sometimes we can get too acclimated to our culture, I think it's important that we have two words of caution before we wade into this today. First, remember that Paul is writing to the saints. This is a message to us that we're not to behave that way anymore. So let's keep that in the back of our minds. Is he speaking to us? Are we guilty of what he's writing about here? And then second, let's be so careful that we don't actually become prideful know-it-alls, sitting in judgment on unbelievers. Because if not for the grace of God shining his light into our darkness, that would describe us well too. Rather, Paul's words should provide an even greater appreciation for what God has done for all of us. And certainly, it should help us better understand people who don't share our belief in Jesus. Of course, after hearing this today, some of us may even conclude that it actually applies to us, that we're still really unbelievers. We're still on that wide, dark path. We haven't grown up one bit in our faith, maybe even. Maybe we conclude that. Maybe we've, we're believers, and so we're on the narrow path, but we haven't grown up. But whatever the case, I hope that the Holy Spirit convicts us to repent as Paul shows us this truth today. So let's break this down together. First, they are darkened in their understanding. Now the word for understanding here refers specifically to the intellect, and believers have a darkened one. They can't see the truth. Even if they attend church regularly, or if they come sporadically just on the holidays, they simply can't see it. They sit in the pews, but they can't see it. They think they know the truth, but it's not the actual truth. It's something they've contrived. So they stumble through life, blown about by every wind 
of doctrine, always seeking but never finding, hoping that next thrill, that next vacation, that next spouse will somehow finally satisfy them, but it never does. Why? Because they're in the dark. They live without light, and they stumble through everything. It's kind of like walking by a pond that is full of fish and concluding that there aren't any in there because you can't see them. The water's too dark, it's too murky, there's too much algae in there. But the fish are there, it's actually loaded. Of course, good fishermen, they know that the big ones are usually found in that thick stuff because their understanding has been enlightened by the truth about how and where fish live. But you don't know any better. Your mind is darkened, so you keep looking for that water hole with some fish in it, but you never really find it. And that's the way unbelievers move through life. They miss out on so much because they can't see it. Their intellect is darkened. Doesn't matter how smart they are either. They simply can't see the truth. And I'm sure we all know people like this. I certainly do. There's a dark veil over their understanding. And since they don't know the truth about Jesus, they make it up to fit their darkened lives. It's what leads to the pervasive ideology of humanism these days, where all focus is on humans because they don't acknowledge God. Their understanding is darkened. Humanists believe everything starts and ends with man. It's all about human satisfaction. They live by the motto, live your best life. You've probably seen it, but do you recognize it as humanism? Dark intellects also explain another prevalent worldview these days, moral relativism. Since they don't know the absolute truth about morality, they make it up as they go. They say things like, to each his own. It's captured in that lie that all roads lead to heaven. Or you just be you, whatever that means. I always have a puzzled look on my face when people tell me that, whatever that means. But here's the thing. People who live by these worldviews they don't know any better because their minds have been darkened. So don't get discouraged when they disagree with you or they want to argue with you about Jesus. They just don't know any better. So we must recognize that, of course, that's the most important thing. What kind of view are they really bringing at us? And then, of course, we always have to be ready to stand by the absolute truth that we know about with regard to Jesus. But my advice is don't engage in debate. There's a better way. Spend time in prayer. It's far more profitable because they're only going to be able to understand if God casts his light into their darkness. Now, you may think this is a bit of a defeatist position to take, especially for a pastor, that we should probably try to win an argument. But making another person lose an argument isn't likely going to result in conversion. It's more likely just going to harden them. It's probably why so many people just turn their nose up at the church, because there's a better way for us to think about this. Now, you may say to yourself, okay, but wait a second, you prepare these sermons every week, and there are all these arguments that you're laying out there. And that's true. It's important that we do that. Why? Because as Paul taught us earlier in this letter, Jesus calls pastors to preach the truth so that people hear it. They can't believe it if they don't first hear it. But the belief part is not on me, and I'm truly grateful for that. Belief is something that only the Holy Spirit can grant. 
So I'm off the hook for that part of it. My job is to teach the truth about Jesus so that it equips the saints, all of you, for the work of ministry. So that unbelievers see and hear about the truth of Jesus as we all live out our faith in our everyday, ordinary lives. But for unbelievers to place their faith in Jesus, well, that only happens by the power of the Holy Spirit. So don't carry that burden around with yourself. But that's also why we must constantly engage in the amazing gift of prayer. It's critical for the church. We simply cannot carry on our vision to reach the tri-state region and beyond without asking, seeking, and knocking for help. When Charles Spurgeon was asked why his ministry was so effective in the late 1800s, he said, because my people pray. 10, 20,000 people came to hear the truth when he preached. Why? Because his people prayed. We must all pray that the Holy Spirit cast the light of Jesus into the darkness so that people understand. Our words and actions are certainly important, but they're simply not enough unless the Holy Spirit comes. That is, is meant by those terms we hear, renewal, rebirth, born again, or revival. Revival is not people refusing to go home after church. It's the Holy Spirit shining the light of Christ. It's the Holy Spirit opening eyes. So the only explanation for us not being on our knees as a church, praying for renewal, rebirth, and revival, is that either we don't understand the gravity of the situation, or we don't understand how it is that darkness is actually overcome. Because the gravity of the situation is dire. Hopefully we can see that now. Eternal destruction is the outcome. And of course, darkness, as we know, is only overcome by the Holy Spirit. And that's why Four Miles' ability to reach the tri-state region and beyond is so dependent on active prayer lives. Do we have active prayer lives in the church? Every week, we have a couple people praying for the services as we worship. There's other things we have. We have a prayer chain. We also encourage everyone, all 586 people who call Four Mile Church their home, we want to encourage everyone to go to the website, go to the kingdom prayers, and pray those kingdom prayers every single week. It's so vital that we do that as a church. So unbelievers are darkened in their understanding and alienated from the life of God. Now the word alienation is clear cut. It means excluded. So unbelievers are excluded from the life of God. But now the word life, it's a bit more tricky. There are two words in the Greek for life. The first is bios. Bios is life in general, the kind all living organisms have. For example, a blade of grass or a housefly, it has bios. But the second word for life is zoe. That's what Paul uses here. It means life as it pertains to the soul. A blade of grass and a housefly doesn't have zoe because they don't have souls, but humans do. So Paul is essentially teaching us here that non-believers are excluded from having a soul that is of God meaning their soul, their inner being, is not of, about, or focused on God. It's focused on self. And so their life is not in Christ. They haven't been born again. 
They don't have the Holy Spirit in them. They have been alienated from that life, the life of living with God. And that's what that firewall up there between those two paths is all about. Unbelievers are in the dark. They've never tasted the light of godly living. And then Paul goes on to give us two reasons why. First, because of the ignorance that is in them. Now that word ignorance here means divine blindness. And although we know more than probably ever before, with access to the internet, tools like Google and artificial intelligence, but we seem to know increasingly less about God and his desire to have a relationship with us. So it's a blindness or an ignorance to all things divine. We're ignorant of Jesus, ignorant of our need for grace, ignorant of God's master plan to unite all things in Christ through his church, ignorant of all that goes down on Judgment Day. Could you imagine if we lived in the light of Judgment Day? Ignorance explains why unbelievers remain darkened in their understanding, why they don't seek the light of God's face. Because if they'd ever caught the slightest whiff, even a glimpse, or even just a small taste of Jesus, they couldn't help but seek him, living in their Bibles to learn more about him, meditating on him, marveling at his creation, desiring to know him more and more, praying to him every chance they get, and all the while losing their fascination with worldly things. C.S. Lewis captures it well in his essay, The Weight of Glory. He writes, we are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. Unbelievers are ignorant of the infinite blessings and treasures of a life with God. They're still fascinated by the mud pies of drink, sex, and ambition. You know, I had one of the most fascinating conversations with a four-miler a few months back at lunch. This gentleman had started to attend very regularly this past year, and I asked him, why do you come to church every week? And I loved his response. He said, I can't not be there. He didn't say, because your sermons are phenomenal. <laughs> he didn't say, the music is so fantastic, or those cookies, those cookies, or the croissants, or whatever, nothing. He didn't say that. He said, I just can't not be there. You see, he had a taste of Jesus, and he couldn't not be there. He had to follow up, and that's what we're talking about here. Second, they're alienated or excluded from the life of God due to their hardness of heart. Hearts represent the very core of a human being, and the word hardness means a callus has formed. That's a great image. I love when Paul gives us images like this, because we've all had a callus before. It's a thickening of, a, of the skin that makes things numb. You can even take a sharp knife and kind of scrape it or cut into it, and you won't feel anything. So these are hearts that are not capable of feeling. They're on rocky soil where seeds just can't grow. And the hardness 
manifests itself in pride. That's what a hard heart is all about. It lacks humility. And so how do calluses form? Well, they're a result of persistent rubbing or persistent disobedience. It creates a hardness. Because the first time we typically engage in sin, we experience things like guilt, regret, remorse, and shame. And that takes the pleasure away from the sin. So the callus has to be built up so that we can start enjoying the sin. And the callus thickens every time we consent to disobedience. It's why so many of us don't think speeding in our cars is that big of a deal. We're kind of numb to it. It's because we've developed a callus over speeding, even though it's breaking the law, it's illegal. It's no different from shoplifting or other misdemeanors, but it doesn't bother us anymore. And if you think about your faith life, the same thing typically goes for lying or failing to observe the Sabbath. We've developed calluses around these sorts of aspects of our faith. And then Paul goes on to characterize the details of this callousness succinctly. He writes, they have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Giving oneself up means surrendering, abandoning oneself, no longer being in control. And sensuality means unbridled lust or living with a relentless desire for pleasure. In other words, the callus has become so thick that it has numbed the guilt, the regret, the remorse, and the shame of sin. It's what promotes unbridled lust. We see it in addictions of all kinds, from pornography to addictions over food or addictions over shopping. It's a relentless pursuit of gluttony of every kind, consuming or squirreling away everything in sight. It's a spiral that spins out of control. And we've talked about our sin spiral in the past. We have that green line, which is the straight edge of truth. And when we lust for something, when we give in to that temptation, we spiral further and further away. It doesn't satisfy us the way we hoped it would. So we look for more of it. We start looking for something else. We just spiral further and further away. And Paul captures this notion by using the word greedy, which means to covet. Coveting is desiring that which is not ours. And the greediness or coveting is for a very specific thing here. It is to practice every kind of impurity. It's the desire to try every kind of unclean thing. Desiring self-gratification at all costs. Always seeking, but never finding. It's what leads to war crimes, indiscriminate school shootings, every sexual perversion imaginable. It's all because of hardened, callous hearts. And Paul is showing us that this is nasty, foul stuff. It's why he goes into such detail here. Perhaps think of it, that wide, dark path up there, like one big steaming pot of turd soup. Because that is exactly what it is. And to make sure this image is burned into the canvas of your heart, I want you to put yourself somewhere in August, maybe at a state fair or something, and it's hot. And you see those, that whole line of porta johns right? And they've been cooking in there for a long time. And you don't even want to look at it. You don't want to go near it. You'll hold it. You'll go somewhere else. You won't go in there. And then when the wind shifts and it blows you your way, you're like, ah, oh, that's awful stuff. That's the picture that Paul is painting for us here. 
He's essentially teaching us, keep your spoons out of that bowl. Stay up wind of that foul stuff. Reject that old life. Flee from every aspect of it. Don't entertain it for one minute. Christ shed his blood to wipe it out, and it cost him dearly to do it. How could we dare ever even think about looking back at it? Rather, we must embrace with great joy this new life in Christ. What an amazing gift this grace is. Living life to the fullest on that narrow, straight, well-lighted path that leads to the kingdom of God. It should cause us to respond in love, in obedience, out of gratitude. And it should cause us to spend every minute we can on our knees, seeking the light of God's face to the point where we just can't not be there, praying for the hard, proud hearts still back on that wide, dark path, and praying that those hearts might actually soften in humility, praying that the Holy Spirit might bring renewal, rebirth, and revival to all of us, that he might shine his light into the darkness, opening eyes to the light of God's love so that we might reach the tri-state region and beyond, making fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. That is what Paul calls us to this morning. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word today. Teach us the truth that only you can shine that light into dark hearts. Give us courage to live on our faith in our everyday, ordinary lives. And Father, would you call us to pray, to deepen our dependence on you, so we never look back to those lives that we led on that wide, dark path. Instead, help us to grow in our relationship with Jesus. It's for his sake we pray. Amen. So for response time today, I'll put this image up here. I'll put a timer on it, a couple minutes or so. What I'd like you to do, first of all, is to begin by kind of praying. If you happen to still be on that wide, dark path, or if you happen to not have matured along it, pray. Pray for yourself. Ask, seek, and knock that the Holy Spirit might help you grow along that path. And then second, pray for those in your life who are still on that wide, dark path. Pray that their hearts might be softened. And then certainly, pray to make sure that your feet are well planted on that narrow, well-lighted path, and pray for the strength to never look back, to move forward, growing closer and closer to Christ with each day. 